Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hello, Robert here on my own today, though a little drop in from Eamon in Dublin shortly. We're talking about music education, which is, of course, a vast subject. So we're focusing on just two particular initiatives in the British Isles, but with massive respect to the rest of you out there providing this stuff on a day-to-day basis. We've got some lovely music for you, notably a wonderful piece for Upper Voices at the end. But let's start with a quick shout-out to listeners outside the UK. We're delighted to have you, whether in Uzbekistan, we apparently have one, uh, Australia, Canada, Denmark, see last episode and probably many others, including the USA, where so much interesting choral work goes on. And where British groups do a fair bit of work, I note that the Marian Consort is just back from the first of two trips to to the USA this year, the Swingles 2, final tour for their tenor John and soprano Midge, who are both moving on to pastures new. I couldn't help noting, by the way, that three out of of seven of the new Swingle lineup are graduates from the University of York, and four of the current eight Marian consort, to say nothing of Steely Antico and other British groups. I'm cheekily mentioning this as York Music Department's Masters in Solo Voice Ensemble Singing that I run is expanding to two five-part groups from this September, and I'm still looking for the odd singer for that. Uh, Very odd. So search Masters York Solo Voice Ensemble if you're interested. Finally, Voces 8 are still out in the US on a mammoth tour. I was catching up with them yesterday through the wonders of modern communications from a car in the middle of an unfeasibly long drive somewhere in Louisiana. Uh, Director Barnaby Smith was filling me in a little about the group's involvement in the welcome news of the reprieve for the BBC singers. Remember that all? hitting the fan this time last year. Uh, more on that another time. But meanwhile, here is Voce's 8's alto, Katie Jeffries-Harris. Katie, say the words. Welcome to Coral Chihuahua. <laughs> day up, down, day up, down. And thank you to Voce's 8 for that dith, or more correctly, quadrithong. Voices 8's new online multi-vowel and lingerie store will be opening soon. Before we go and talk to our main guest, Tom Leach in Leeds, about the National School Singing Programme, I thought it would be helpful to get a summary of just how much has changed in state music education over 40 years in England. So I asked Director of Music at Huntington School in York, Tim Burnage, whether he could sum it up for us. Tim. What have the last 40 years in music education been like? Well, at the age of 42, here's my best shot at a summary. By the early 1980s, all children had class music making and the right to paid instrumental vocal lessons. But this was to change during the decade as, although subsidised by the local council, charges began for instrumental tuition in schools. Still, a great opportunity for a budding pianist who had private lessons with Mrs Latham, a characterful septuagenarian with a purple rinse and Dame Edna-style glasses, to get on with learning a second instrument at relatively low cost. Orchestras and choirs were commonplace in schools. Hymn practice, singing assemblies and weekly classroom music lessons were regularly delivered, firmed up by Ken Baker's national curriculum in 1989. 
Music made the cut and was compulsory for ages 5 to 14. GCSE and A-level courses were offered for those who wanted to access further qualifications. Local councils enhanced the work happening in schools by supporting county, youth orchestras, bands and choirs for those who wanted to supplement their school-based learning with evening and weekend activities. And so, armed with a clarinet, I headed off to an out-of-school orchestra. Memorable concerts and a trip to Venice in the mid-90s were particular highlights. Turn of the century, music education sees an increase in the use of music technology, including an A-level in the subject. Composition can happen on specialist software. The age of inking over your carefully written out manuscript pencil markings are numbered. Education, 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 says Tony Blair, and schools experience significant growth in funding. A wider variety of courses emerge, music included, but concerns about the increased focus on literacy and numeracy in the primary curriculum suggest that other subjects are beginning to be squeezed out. Meanwhile, academisation is a tool used increasingly by Labour to rescue failing schools, but with it comes a legal freedom for schools to design their own curriculums. And then the arrival of the coalition government of 2010, who put an end to the local council involvement in music education by creating music education hubs. This coincided with Michael Gove's pet project, the EBAC, which has gone on to undermine creative subjects in state schools for over a decade now. As some subjects were elevated to EBAC status, others were demoted to also-rans and schools have responded in various ways from placing music on a carousel with other less important subjects to removing the subject altogether. Even the more recently published Model Music Curriculum's recommendation that music should be taught for at least one hour a week from key stage one to three is non-statutory. GCSE and A-level entries have declined significantly during the period, with A-level entries falling from approximately 12,000 in 2010 to 5,000 last year. And these courses are very much still running in the private sector, so it's state school children that miss out on the opportunity for A-level and GCSE study. As schools close courses, they can no longer afford to run. And so the lottery of music education has gathered pace during the last decade. There are still many wonderful educators doing extraordinary things with young people in music up and down the country, but this is not a universal experience. The funding given to music hubs in 2024 is still the same as it was in 2010, which equates to a sizable cut. Subsidised music lessons are limited in many areas and opportunities have diminished as a result. The disadvantage gap has never been wider. This is as true in primary schools as it is in secondaries. And with fewer and fewer students studying music to a high level, we see the impact of this on tertiary education, with two universities closing their music courses in the last year, whilst the DfE met only 27% of its target for newly trained music teachers. Crisis? What crisis? Thank you, Tim Burnage, and bravo to you and your colleagues Liz, Buffy and others for all you do at Huntington School. I suppose the thing I take from this is that the availability of music at school isn't always about money, it's about choice. The Conservative government's EBAC specifically says that some subjects are more important than others, removing a lot of choice. But the trouble with that way of thinking is that the right subjects for you depend on who you are. For a wonderful and also brilliantly comic introduction to why maths may not in fact be more important than, say, dance, to take one example, find the late Ken Robinson's TED Talk on education on YouTube. Short, funny and very important. But for now, let's hop 20 minutes across the road from York to Leeds, where I'm going to Vespers and Mass at Leeds Catholic Cathedral 
and then to have a chapter Thomas Leach who runs a very important program of music in Catholic schools in the quite enormous Diocese of Leeds. Here's the choir at the cathedral singing part of John Shepherd's In Pace from a recent BBC broadcast. So I've just listened to Vespers and Mass in the centre of Leeds, in Leeds Cathedral, definitely not the Anglican Minster around a, around a few corners. And I'm sitting here with Tom Leach. Tom, give us um, a number of your full titles. <laughs> Hi, Robert. It's, it's great to be on this. Um, so my role here in the Diocese of Leeds is the director of the school's singing programme. And alongside that, I'm a consultant for the national school's singing programme as well. And we should get straight into that because, I mean, I think that if you and I were in a pub, we'd sit here preaching to the choir and bemoaning what has happened to music education in this country over 40 years. But we're not going to do that. Let's, let's start instead by talking about the good stuff. Let's, can you explain what the National School Singing Programme is? The National School Singing Programme is based on the model we've got here in Leeds, whereby a diocese or cathedral, in fact, concentrates its musical resources on the very foundation levels, so primary school provision, 
and it's very much not outreach but rather centering the absolute core in that foundational educational work in schools um, so in Leeds we work with around six and a half thousand children a week across the diocese in primary schools feeding then into the after-school choirs including the cathedral choir that you heard um, this afternoon and the national program is a funding program that has enabled the other Catholic dioceses in the country initially to start similar programs of seed funding and all of those dioceses have signed up to this so it's a huge injection of foundational work linked to the church's role in music and subsequently six of the Anglican cathedrals have joined that program as well. So people could find this sort of thing around the country? Absolutely, yeah. Com completely nationwide in Wales, Ireland and with some participation in Scotland as well. I've seen tonight your choir sing Vespers and Mass but so you're saying that isn't that isn't the sort of top end of it. What your top end is the wrong word. You're going into schools. I mean, you just said six thousand children. That's an awful lot, given the sort of pattern one has in one's head as oh, there isn't music in schools anymore. It it is a lot of children, and it and it feels like a lot of children when I'm looking at the timetables and what my colleagues are doing. And I I started the day today actually not with uh, worrying about what a Guerrero Magnificat would sound like, but actually with Year Two, a uh, whole class of Year Two, delightful children and a choir in a Catholic primary school in Beeston. And um, it's one of the interesting things about my role is that it seems to encompass sort of pretty much anything I could imagine doing. It's one of the reasons I, I love doing it so much. I absolutely adore working with the little ones and I love having the challenge of the, the high-end music. But I've sometimes failed to explain to people or, or met with a bit of bemusement that actually the, that sort of excellence of, you know, school children singing polyphony isn't the aim, it's an outcome of what we're doing. And that aim is the foundational work with those kids who if we weren't providing that music, actually they wouldn't be doing it. Not through any, um, sorry. You're a busy man, you're allowed to receive calls. It's a functional building. I'm loving, by the way, the, uh, the prints on the wall. There's the Gidonian hand for, yes. your, for your solmization, Udrumi, a nice collection of instruments, 19th century collection of instruments and some, and some plain chants. And lovely to hear the plain chant today. staff do you have going into these schools because to service that number of children it's a huge number and um, I can never remember off the top of my head even when I'm doing emails and things I'm perpetually worried about missing people off um, so I think we've got eight full-time choral directors so they're doing the bulk of that choral work so it's primary school delivery which will typically be maybe three school sessions a day slightly more and from those schools, they then run the after-school choirs, which will be based in areas. So in Leeds, that happens to be the cathedral choir. But then we run similar choirs in Bradford, um, North Yorkshire, set of choirs. Same thing in Huddersfield and the same in the southern bits of the diocese, Pontefract, Wakefield and so on. Yorkshire is a big county. Well, number of counties, isn't it? 
Yeah, the diocese is huge and the, um, the sort of geography brings into question the kind of equality as well. It's a really interesting question. You know, if you're in a kid in a primary school in Beeston or Hare Hills and Bermontofs, you know, areas in Leeds have got lots of deprivation, a lot of challenge. They could join our after school choirs, which happened to be the cathedral choir. So of the children who were singing today, the ones who've been on Radio 3 recently, the boys choir and so on, you know, we'll have plenty of children who are on free school meals, or kids who you know can't afford the bus fare to get to choir and we've had support or they've dropped out of choir for a bit because of that. But they've still got a really elite, secure pathway towards the top of what they're going to be able to achieve. One of the huge challenges for us, and I think something that goes across music education, is actually what do you do if you're in those ex-mining towns like Moorthorpe, Pontefract, all those areas, Hemsworth, where geography means you haven't got access to this choir. We've got our own after-school choirs there as well, but it's never going to be quite as well resourced. That's a challenge we not yet find a way of meeting. Mm. I'm I'm think I'm imagining myself at that age and um and imagining whether I'd want to join a choir to sing church music, but that's that's a kind of false equivalence, isn't it? Because you've I was looking at your, your resources today online, you've got this extraordinary series of, of resources both on YouTube and elsewhere, of things um for I suppose it's for your own teachers, but also for school teachers to do. But I think I, I read somewhere you were saying that the number of people who are happy to run a singing session in a school that are on the school staff already is very, very small. So your guys presumably are zooming around all over the place to cover this number of schools. Yeah, it's it's very peripatetic. So um, there's there's a huge amount of travel involved, um, particularly you know if you're in those large expanses of Yorkshire you know if you're out I think the diocese actually goes goes into Lancashire Barlick um, and on the other side it's Selby and Ghoul places I, like that. I'm having this sort of James Herriot view now of a man in a little sort of Ford <laughs> from the 1930s going through the dales and things but but the repertoire that they're singing as well I mean, it's not you're not teaching them a Guerrero Magnificat in a in a primary school somewhere they've got all sorts of different resources. Exactly and it's really centred around what is vocally and educationally appropriate for those children. Um, so it's about engagement, you know, it's like all these things, participation, behaviour and so on. If the children are engaged, they will come with you. And that engagement will always come from the appropriate material, but also the skill of the teaching, which is something we play, place a huge um, premium on at the core directors. You know, how, how good are they at actually teaching and delivering uh, singing class. So what I just listened to, the service that I guess a lot of listeners will be used to, although it's that may be the first time I've ever been to a Catholic Vespers, wow. having sung Monteverdi Vespers and all that kind of stuff for years. What an admission. Um, I know, I know, but um, how lovely it was to hear it. I mean, Nicholas Mulroy was talking, I think only last week in the Polyphony programme, about how polyphony is different when it's part of the liturgy. And yes. I, I turned on my radio, one of the great glories of BBC radio, is that you just turn on here something that you hadn't expected. And there you all were singing Talis Fidete Miraculum as, as part of the Vespers. How many of them will get the chance to, to tackle that? I mean, with your choirs in Bradford as well, will, they, will there be a, a good number uh, getting that music as part of the liturgy? It's always going to be a pyramid because there are so many little stages in getting to that so that the children you heard this evening and heard on on the radio will have 
joined the cathedral choirs from their whole class singing and the, the entry level to get into the cathedral choirs is astonishingly low it's you know can you pitch match and are you going to turn up um not have you had acres and hours of prior attainment have you had already come to us with x y and z it's just do you want it really do you want to come are you enjoying singing um and they'll have joined you know our little East choir the children's choir which is a lot of singing games could i and then moved into junior boys and girls choirs and then into senior boys and girls choirs so it's the girls this evening with our choral scholars um you said Kadai, just quick parenthesis for people not familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it could, could end up being a long parenthesis, but I'll try and be quick. So a, a few years ago, as part actually of the National Schools Singing Programme, we completely revamped the curriculum that we use in our school sessions. So it's very organised, very incremental. And Lucinda Gigan from National Youth Choir of Scotland has written us a fabulous sight singing resource and musicianship resources, tiny little nuggets that you do every week for just a few minutes, taking them from those tiny initial exploration physically of pulse and then rhythm, and then slowly introducing um, the Kadai syllables, the, you know, your Do, Re, Mi. And um, one of the most beautiful moments I've had actually in, in this job recently was watching a colleague with a, a group of year six kids in a challenging school, a, a brilliant school, rather challenging bit of Leeds in Middleton, um, with these kids sing, sight singing pentatonic melodies absolutely perfectly with the syllables and offstave notation just through that little and often. And of course that equips kids coming into the choirs with so much agency when they're singing um, and so much more, um, I guess, potential to keep going with that because they can generate the music internally. So that's quite a long parenthesis. Sorry about that. But but um, as I walked into the cathedral, I was given a, um, a booklet of plain chant notation, and so they're also singing four stave, you know, medieval plain chant notation as well. I had a really interesting chat um, when the sixteen came and Harry came and did some work with the kids, and we were talking. Harry, who's that? Harry Christopher. Sorry, of course. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't. <laughs> Dropping things, but you know. Um, and that was brilliant because he, he was fabulous. Um, I don't know if he was pulling my leg when he said he hadn't worked with people of that age before. Um, and I think he was possibly a little bit nervous about how engaged they'd be with it. But one of the things he was talking about was actually the how expressive a lot of their polyphony singing was, mm. um, the sort of shape of the line and so on. And I'm absolutely convinced that comes because they're singing the chant every day. You know, when we've done Duraflay Requiem and things, it can be a bit of a struggle with an amateur adult choir, even with pros sometimes, to get the line. Whereas our kids, because they know the chant and they're singing it day in, day out, mass, you know, the big Gregorian introits, um, they get that sense of flexibility of line that the polyphony grows out of. And also, it's just fabulous for reading. So I think you've got a bit of footage of that that we could listen to. Yes, yeah, so there's some audio we recorded in their concert with Harry Christopher's conducting. It's Talis's wonderful Pentecost motet, Lockwabanta, based around, again, the long chant Vesper Responsory. And um, I think something they were amazed by was how much the kids love singing it, how engaged they are in music that can seem esoteric and dry in a way. So I hope you can hear some of that in the recording.
Loquibanto Virus Linguist by Thomas Tallis Motet for Pentecost, and that was sung by eight members of the 16 and the girls and scholars of Leeds Cathedral Choir, conducted by Harry Christophers. I love that how he writes for seven voices in that to show the many voices, the many um, uh, languages that the apostles spoke, and all based on that plain chant going through the through the middle of it, which, as we were saying, would mean more to your singers than than, than some others. Thomas, tell me about some of the specific issues that you... I mean, you've mentioned the pyramid, the pyramid effect of having some of the best singers singing uh, for services here, but you also said at the beginning that that's an output of what's doing. Your job is to, is to foster singing in schools. So tell me some of the, the problems that creates or the, the benefits. Well, the benefits, I hope, are long-term on the broadest level in that you're exposing thousands of children to a really positive experience of singing and you know that's got to be good um and the, the approach of having really wide access foundations means that the children accessing are sort of further on pathways to after school choirs or cathedral choirs very good youth choirs elsewhere it means you're drawing in a diversity of participants because Really, they're joining right at the start of their journey where they don't need, there's no need for any prior achievement, for instance. We just take them and there are very few preconceptions of what choir might be, for instance. Um, and so, yes, you, you end up with these choirs where both socially and in terms of cultural heritage, they're extraordinarily diverse. Um, I mean, they, they, really, they really are just the number of um, ethnic groups I saw in the choir today is not something I'm used to seeing in a cathedral, which is no particular criticism of the cathedrals, but it's a feature of, of your choir. I, I think it is very striking and um, a very positive thing. In some ways, of course, it's absolutely representative of the mm -hmm. congregation at the cathedral and absolutely representative of the city as well. Um, so the disadvantages... I suppose, is that, you know, we focus on that foundation work. We have excellent coaches, you know, they, they do really well here. Um, but on the whole, the children are from families where there's no extra ability or capacity to provide any further musical tuition. So you can be right at the high end of our choirs and probably only having the singing lessons we provide, probably not playing another instrument probably in a school on the whole with a one-person massively overstretched music department and very little support for extracurricular activity. So the found, the, that breadth of musical experience, despite what we're doing, despite their achievement, they can't compete with somebody who's been perhaps privately educated or supported you know, very widely parentally. But there you, I mean, that's a musician speaking, but there you are providing that, um, uh, providing that service that otherwise they wouldn't have anything at all. I mean, we, uh, I, I look at concert, I look at concert audiences and I think um, we always worry that concert audiences are getting older. I think they always have been because, you know, who before the age of 50 has the time or the money or the inclination to go out in the evening and watch a concert? They're too busy looking after kids. But, but however, the... It, it is a concern that if you don't have people coming through schools, then who will be there to, to appreciate the music? Maybe that's the sort of wrong end to look at it from, but one can't help, as a professional musician, worrying about that sort of thing. But also worrying about the lack of, of the edu educationally broadest sense 
that, that music brings to people. In the schools, is it just people that want to sing in choir that take part, or is it a whole year group? How does it work? So in schools, it's absolutely and dogmatically, it's whole classes. There, There is no choice going on here. Glorious. No choice. Um, and in fact, when when I speak to heads about, you know, the school might be joining the programme and they say, oh, we'd really like a choir. Um, actually, my starting point is normally, well, you run the choir yourselves and we'll do the whole class thing because that's where the transformation takes place. And that's where you see children who would never have selected to come and sing in a singing group suddenly find that spark for music or perhaps children who actually the school would have assumed for whatever reasons um, that it wasn't going to be the right thing for them find the space it might not even be you know brilliant achievement or whatever but it might be something that's going to be a real kind of core a real thing that becomes passion for them or just a, a sense of solace or release or whatever um, so yeah whole, whole class singing no, no opting out we're going to hear from Eamon Dugan now Eamon who's in uh, Dublin as we speak uh, working on an initiative there and it's a completely different sort of thing um, and at a slightly different end but we're going to cut over to him now and have a listen to see what he has to say. Hi all, Eamon here. I'm currently working in Dublin with Chamber Choir Ireland, known commonly as CCI, not on this occasion to conduct the choir itself but in a new venture to work with them in an effort to foster the talent of their future singers. Let's hear first from the Chief Executive of the Choir, Magilla Hollywood. The CCI Studio is a development programme for emerging professional choral singers who are born, resident or studying on the island of Ireland. There's no third level course in Ireland for ensemble singing, yet there's an incredibly vibrant non-professional choral sector. At CCI auditions we see so many singers with potential to work with us, but they need help to get the experience and skills development to make that next step into the professional world. So as Ireland's premier professional choir, it's been a long-held ambition of ours to provide that experience and the opportunity for these young singers to train here with us, with the very best conductors and singers as mentors. We believe so strongly in protecting the future of choral arts in Ireland. We've long had composition programmes in schools and professional development programmes for established composers. In 2023-2024, we've worked through developing choral conducting workshops with several partners throughout the island, and now this, our flagship Next Generation project at the CCI Studio. So this year we have 13 singers ranging in age from 19 to 31, and they've been working incredibly hard with Eamon Dugan, four of our CCI professional singers, and a vocal coach, Colette McGahan. They have three weekend courses throughout the year, and then there are also opportunities for the studio singers to shadow and observe CCI rehearsals, to become exposed to the, the wide range of repertoire that we cover in CCI, as well as side-by-side -side performance opportunities. It's the first year, so it's a pilot year, and that will shape how the studio develops in future years. But while it's new, it's such an important part of our work, securing the future of professional singers in Ireland. I also asked a couple of the participants in the course to say a few words about where they come from and how the course is benefiting them. Hi folks, my name is Callum Jekyll. I'm 24 years old and I'm a bass in the Chamber Choir Ireland studio. I remember the first weekend of the studio back in November. I felt quite nervous going in as I didn't really know what to expect and it was a little bit of a culture shock to work at such a high level. But I settled into the fast pace and really enjoyed working on all the small details. 
It really helped that everyone in the room was just as enthusiastic as I am. I'm currently in my final year of university, studying choral conducting at the Royal Irish Academy of Music, so I learned a lot from observing how Eamon rehearsed us. I also perform pretty often as a singer myself, as cantor of my local church and regularly depping in churches and cathedrals in Dublin. So of course I've been able to learn so much just from singing side by side with the professional singers of Chamber Choir Ireland. I think having the opportunity to work at this level but also have the room to experiment and make mistakes has been so valuable for me. I would love to work in a professional ensemble like Chamber Choir Ireland when I finish my degree, so I'm delighted to have this experience. Um, for now, I'm looking forward to our final studio weekend in June. Hello Choral Chihuahua, my name is Mary Walsh and I'm a soprano in the Chamber Choir Ireland studio directed by Eamon Dugan. I'm a conductor and singer by trade and the last few years I have been eager to try out more professional work as a chorister. When the CCI studio was announced, it ticked all boxes and of course I applied. Learning from Eamon has been superb from both angles as a singer and conductor. After each session, I'm buzzing to return to my choirs with his warm-ups, vocal tips and musical ideas. The detail we get to dive into is something I absolutely love. Having sang with only amateur ensembles, no bashing tends to lead a rehearsal. In the CCI sessions, we get to immerse ourselves in the style of the music and create the colours and sound world the composers had intended. It's magic. Chamber Choir Ireland has provided us with a platform to experiment and express in a relaxed setting while learning from leading professionals in the choral world. Lastly, I am a massive fan of Choral Chihuahua, such an informative podcast all should listen to. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Magella, Callum and Mary for sharing their thoughts there. In talking to the singers of the CCI studio, I was struck by how many of them are furthering their development and getting vital real-life experience singing in church and cathedral choirs. And in an encouraging episode like this, where we're hearing how the National School Singing Programme is helping to feed new singers into a cathedral choir setup, it's worth noting just how much choral music in the UK and Ireland is still related to and provided by the church. Although, of course, there are many offshoots from that. But this rich choral tradition is still the root for so much ensemble singing. And long may that be the case.
that was The Saviour's Lullaby, or Suantri or Slornohora, by Fintan O'Carroll, sung by Chamber Choir Ireland, conducted by Paul Hillier. A text originally in Scottish and translated into Irish by Sean Och O'Turma. Meanwhile, I was still gabbing on to Tom Leach, uh, director in Leeds of England's National School Singing Programme. Uh, by the way, Tom mentioned our previous programme on polyphony with Claire Wilkinson and Nicholas Mulroy. A reminder that you can listen back to any of our previous 55 programmes, such as vocal jazz, singing in the menopause, or interviews with Roderick Williams or Carolyn Sampson, and plenty more. Just go to choralchihuahua.com and then navigate to your favourite way of listening, Apple or Spotify, or the one that actually contributes to making this programme, Patreon. If you're prepared to set up a very modest monthly donation on Patreon, then that really helps us pay for the cost of making the episodes. Do consider it. Tom and I got on to talking about the variety of skills required by his colleagues, which choral conductors listening will surely recognise as they jump from a session with primary school children to preparing for a church service. Yeah, the skills that you just described it as uh, mental virtuosity. I'm not sure I could lay any claim to that myself. But um, well, in the, you, you know, you're doing Francesco, Francesco Guerrero in the evening, but in the morning you've been doing singing games and working with a totally different type of audience. You might feel that's the same as one musician, but one musician with these skills. But that's a very different way of talking to people. And because so much of choral directing, lots of conductors listen to this. So much of choral directing is not a musical thing; it's social skills, isn't yeah. it? As well. Yeah, it's it's interesting that, um, and I think I I probably learn more from working with little ones in the schools to inform working at a cathedral choir or adults or professionals than the other way around. I think you take so much from working with children and their openness and rapidity, um, and and the way that you can influence the sound so quickly, um, but they're so receptive to to that and the clarity of communication you have to have with them. You know, there's no room for flights of fancy or being ambiguous even um so the the people we've got working for us i'm so lucky to have a fabulous team of colleagues um who just a, a delight to work with and generally they make me feel quite old i would say um and they tend tend to be early professional jobs on the whole and people who have been i think almost all all music graduates with a great love of singing, but really interested in the teaching side of things. I think it's fair to say that we rarely take on, we rarely have the opportunity to take on people who are the finished article in terms of classroom or choir delivery. And actually it's down to us to mold and create and inspire and support staff um, because I think that those days of, say, a cathedral, eccentric cathedral organist cannoning into a school and doing a wild eccentric thing, you know, it's, it just doesn't happen. And it's it, probably a good thing. Yeah, it shouldn't happen anymore. And schools, you know, they're under so much pressure. I mean, it's insane and, you know, we can, could bemoan that for, for hours. But they've got to have a really high quality product in terms of curriculum and teaching quality. Um, and that's something that experience you don't really get if you're on a university course. But you're being given time, are you, in school curriculum time to do this? This isn't just an after... I mean, you talked about some after-school things, but if, if music isn't valued by a head teacher, uh, I suppose then your project is not going to be going in that school at all anyway. No, that's very true. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, there is a bit of advocacy to get it over the threshold. Um, and some, some people aren't, you know, they're head teachers who are, who are now younger than me, and, and they're the product of 
an already pretty much dismantled music education environment. So why would they see the value if they've never participated this, in it? This is the, the vicious circle, you know, when you see decisions made at uh, Cheltenham Festival recently or Oxford Brooks University or all the other universities that have, that have dumped music. It's because the people making the decisions haven't benefited from their, themselves and there's that view of, well, if you want music, you, you pay for it as an extra. Yeah, no, ex exactly. And you've, you've only got to look at what's on the horizon for the music hubs, for instance, who are on the, on the brink of potential catastrophe, I think, in the um, state school music sector. It, that might not happen, but, but who knows? Um, so, yeah, in curriculum time, you've got to have those teaching skills. You've got to be going to a school and saying, actually, yes, we have this really incremental notation curriculum designed for us. We have this. This is how the children are going to be taught. This is the content. Um, it can't just be about singing, but singing is the, the vehicle, the wonderful vehicle for such ready access to, to the kind of glories of being a musician, I suppose. Um, do, do you find yourself having to fight for, uh, or for shouting about music's worth on its own as opposed to music's very good because it helps you learn other things? Do you find yourself using both arguments? It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it, the, the music being good for other stuff. Harry Bradford was moaning about that on a programme yeah. a couple yeah, of weeks yeah. ago, but it's inevitable, isn't it? It's, it's inevitable. Um, of course, it's true, but I think when you're talking to school buying, you know, an hour a week for, you know, half an hour for each class, those things are important, but actually they, they do see, if you argue for it coherently and you can demonstrate what they're going to learn, they do see the value in music for itself, of itself. Um, we have a huge advantage in that kind of provision, I suppose. It comes back to um, what you had in the, the polyphony um, programme about being... It's Are you one of our seven listeners? I, I am, Wonderful. yes. I didn't listen to all of it, actually, but I, I listened to the faith bit, actually. I caught no, that. Nor did Sammy. <laughs> um, and because we're going into Catholic schools, it is an expression of faith, and that's why the diocese and the Catholic Church will support it because it's evangelization. It's not about producing an excellent choir. That's, again, another product of, of that. Um, and that, of course, is going to be very different to secular school landscape. And what number of, of Catholic schools are there in this enormous diocese, Catholic diocese? So the diocese has got 92 schools, of which we're in 72, I think. So that's 72 schools a week that our choral directors are whizzing around Wow, and I still got that that James. I got the James Herriot theme music going on my head. I shall have that mixed, mixed with Guerrero. Um, Tom, where would you like to be in five years' time? I mean, still funded, I suppose, is is part of the answer. Yeah, I mean, the the funding one, I guess, we touch on very quickly is um, what's at the heart of it is sustainability, and you you know you'll know the fragility of the project funding model. And um, our model is, is really that the product has got to be good enough for the schools to pay for. Um, so schools buy in to us as they would from, from a music hub at market rate, which pretty much sustains the programme. Of course, that's very, very vulnerable to school budgets and interest. Um, but it's a very commercial operation. You know, it's not based on when the next grant is, is coming in. It's got to be sustainable because, you know, what's the point otherwise? Um, so yeah, in, in five years' time, I mean, I, I'll still be here, I'm sure, and um, I'd like to think that we're reaching more children, we're doing it with even more consistency, and that we're starting to see the kids who've come all the way through our pathway from 
key stage one singing through to being choral scholars or um, right at the top of the cathedral choirs, that they see continued involvement in choral music in whatever form as a really viable place where they belong so that they're not looking at Oxbridge choirs or other opportunities and think seeing the pictures or whatever and think, thinking I don't belong there that's not for me or they're not walking into the room and thinking no one else is like me here um, I'd like to you know it's not five years time I think but 10-15 years time be great if some of those kids who I've worked with are actually sat in this chair doing this kind of thing you know I'd be so thrilled if it's opened doors to to a sort of more equitable I'm not sure is is the right word but I think if our little niche of classical music is going to flourish which it should do and because it, it's wonderful isn't it you know we know it's wonderful um we need to be thinking how do we make access to it as wide as possible it's not throwing out quality it's sustainability and I think what I'd love to see is a real understanding from the professional end I guess of the the industry that it's primary school work that needs massive advocacy it really it really is and I'm thinking you know imagine if you came into a coming I don't know what sort of education stuff you've done in the past or Harry Christopher's or Paul McCreech or whoever going into primary schools not necessarily delivering things but they would be so fascinated to hear you about music you know the kids just soak it up and to hear you Fagellini or the 16 or Gabrielli or any of any of these wonderful groups Cantos and, and Ellie would be amazing and I think as performing professionals we have to see that we've got to get our hands dirty in the storm of education otherwise there's not a future for it 40 50 years down the line I think but I've got full of hope when I work with the children I really am my thanks to Tom Leach I realized that the kind thing to do would actually have been to take him a, a sandwich or some cake before interviewing him post services at the end of a very long day uh, Tom mentioned Kadai training and he was also talking about the importance of plane chant so it seemed fitting to finish this episode with Kadai's home of Hungary and a great piece for Upper Voices by Levente Gyöngyishi, based on the plain chant theme Ubi Caritas, sung by pro musiker conductor Dinesh Sabo. See you next time, or for our Hungarian Australian listeners, Karai.
Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.